If you would, please turn to Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 8. Isaiah 56, 1 through 8. As you're doing so, I've got a brief announcement. Odd placement, I know, but the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. For the past week or so, we've, had, uh, we've been taking open nominations from the congregation for officer candidates, elder and deacon candidates. We're always on the lookout for men who fit the character qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, especially if they are also apt to teach like elders or those who serve well like deacons. In short, we're looking for a few godly men to serve God's church. And if you know anyone like that, please give their name to one of our pastors or elders or deacons. We'll know what to do from there. And if you know somebody like that, including yourself, please, please keep that in mind. Uh, without further ado, let's read Isaiah 56, 1 through 8. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, great God, highest heavens. We pray that you would be glorified in us in this hour, that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> the best is still to come. That's what God's people must realize. The best is still to come. And this has been true in every age. Consider these verses, for example, Hebrews 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And then verse 16 says, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Those words weren't written about the Israelites who returned from exile, but they could have been. And Isaiah 56 was written by Isaiah before the exile, but his 
true audience, most think, was those who would live through the exile and then return, those who would live many years later, return from exile and be slightly disappointed. This is the group that lived between promise and reality. They had come home, but it wasn't, wasn't quite home. It wasn't as good as they remembered. Their memory was distorted. They had airbrushed out the bad memories. And still the best was yet to come. Now Isaiah 55 moves from a free banquet for all who know their need to Isaiah 56, the house of prayer for all the nations, all who cling to the Lord. But we've moved now into the final section of Isaiah, chapters 56 to 66. God's emphasis is no longer on purifying his remnant out of the rebellious, no longer on comforting the discouraged and the dominated ones who were headed into exile. No, now God is preparing all of his true people for his promised salvation. Even after exile, they will need to know again that the best is yet to come. The same thing is true for those of us who live between two worlds, who live in what the New Testament calls the last days, the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. The remnant in every age, the ones who cling to God and not the world's false promises, the remnant need to know that the best is yet to come. We need to know that full salvation is near, but it's not already here. We need to know that full salvation is certain, regardless of present circumstances, regardless of family and legacy, regardless of geography, ethnicity, or other status. We see all that today in three simple points, three simple promises. Our first point is this, justice commanded, blessings promised. Justice commanded, blessings promised in verses 1 and 2. This is going to be the longest of the three points. I want to warn you ahead of time. Verses 1 and 2 say this, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Yes, there's a command here, but God's grace precedes the command. Verse 1 says, God's salvation, it's, it's not coming because of his people's obedience. No, his salvation, it's nearness. That is their motivation to obey. Salvation and blessing are coming. God expects his people to obey. We love because he first loved us. If we love him, we will keep his commands, the scripture says. And this passage here seems to say, if we love him, we will keep his Sabbath. Sabbath, it's mentioned several times here. The Sabbath, a holy day of rest for God's people. It's God's gift to us. We sometimes forget that. We get tied up in knots. Question of what we can and can't do on the Sabbath day. To counter that, I like to start with four simple things about the Sabbath when we talk about it. These are not the ones in your sermon outline in the bulletin, but what are four simple things we need to know about the Sabbath? What is the Sabbath for? It's for worship, rest, works of necessity, and mercy. It's for worship. Now, all of life is worship, but corporate gathered worship is special. And God says that one day out of seven should be devoted to that, six other days to work, play, do mostly as we please, and then rest. Sabbath is about resting from the work of the other six days as much as possible. Resting as well 
in the finished work of Christ, in the salvation that has already been accomplished. What a great way to start the week. And then works of necessity and mercy. I'll combine the two. Some things can't wait. If the ox fell in the ditch, you didn't wait until Monday to save him. If the roof of the church springs a huge leak, rendering the building unusable, we'll fix it on Sunday and pray for a more restful Sunday in a week. Many things can wait if you plan ahead, but some can't. And mercy. If you aren't working on non-essentials, non-necessities, then voila, you have time to show mercy to others, to visit someone in the hospital, to take them cookies when they're sick. Thank you. You know who you are. If you focus on worship, rest, necessity, and mercy, probably in that order, then most of your big Sabbath questions will fall into place. But I want to say a little bit more today because God mentions keeping the Sabbath three times in five verses here. It seems important. It seems to be crucial to this idea, this command to keep justice and do righteousness. So here are six reasons why keeping the Sabbath is emblematic of that justice and righteousness that God desires. Six reasons. These are in your bulletin. The first one is this. The Sabbath is about rest for you and rest for those who serve you. The Jews were supposed to give their servants the day off and their animals too. Barry Webb says to keep the Sabbath meant, among other things, that you serve the God who created the world and cared for everyone and everything in it. The Sabbath shows that you care about your own rest and that of others. Second, the Sabbath proves we believe that God is Lord over our time. It takes faith to set aside one day in seven to believe that God can bless your six days of effort when all of the competition is spending seven days working, studying, practicing. But if God is Lord over our time, then we'll submit to his command, which leads to the third reason keeping the Sabbath is emblematic of the righteousness he desires. Third, to quote Barry Webb again, the Sabbath is not an end in itself, but a sign that the whole of life was to be lived in submission to God. Not just my time, all of my life. My words, my actions, my thoughts, my emotions. Why would I do that? Why would I submit all these things to him? Because God promises in verse 1 that his salvation is near. And he promises that his path for life is better. In keeping his Sabbath, it's emblematic of, our, of submitting our whole lives, including our time, to him. The fourth reason that Keeping the Sabbath is emblematic of the justice he desires. Fourthly, again from Webb, true Sabbath observance is to refrain from evil, not just work. If you don't work, that's good. But if you go and do what God calls evil on the Sabbath day, have you really kept the Sabbath? If God is Lord over my time and Lord over all of my life, then keeping his Sabbath means I'll do what he wants and I'll run the other way from all the things he hates. Sabbath rest helps me rest in all of God's ways, to walk in all of his paths. And as Psalm 25:10 says, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. This is why the Sabbath is central to what he desires. Another reason, fifth reason, the Sabbath looks forward to the final rest that God has promised. Looks forward to that final rest. We could turn to Hebrews on this. We don't quite have time, but God 
rested when he finished the work of creation. And now he calls us to rest one day in seven. Resting so that we have a small preview of the blessings that await us. The Sabbath, it's been said, the Sabbath is a sea of get to and a world of have to. Delights in the midst of duties. One day we will rest and have nothing but delight all around us. The Sabbath is pointing us forward to that, which is why God desires it, that we keep it. One more reason. Sabbath proves that his people are otherworldly. Sabbath proves that his people are otherworldly. <clears throat> we are often so afraid to be different from the world around us. It's because we want the world's acceptance, but we're called to be different for our good, for the world's good, for God's glory. The Sabbath, think about this, it required God's people to reorder their life, it still does, around the worship of one God, positively keeping the Sabbath, negatively refraining from what God calls evil. They were called to be holy, to be different, and not so that they could brag about how good, how self-righteous they were, but for God's glory and the people's good. Alec Moitier puts it this way, if the people of God lose distinctiveness, there is nothing for anyone to join nor any good reason for seeking to do so. Beware of wanting the church to be more like the world. It's usually because we want the world's approval. And my friends, that is a moving target and probably a fool's errand. And I'm the worst offender. I want you to like me, all of you. Pretty sure I said that at the men's retreat. You can amen me if you were there and remember that. I want you to like me. When I should want to live and breathe for an audience of one. I should want the world to see that there is a better way to live. Better way than simply seeking the approval of every interest group around. Because isn't that the real point? Our lives are meant to be different so that others might be drawn to us by God's grace. One author says it this way, their life together, that of God's people, is to be a visible sign of the kingdom of God. His reign of perfect justice and righteousness is just around the corner, breaking in and already making its presence felt. Because you see, God's righteousness that's mentioned in verse 1, it's not simply about the righteousness and holiness he requires. It is that, but it's more. It is that. Let's not ignore that. God does demand holiness of us, and we can't meet it, which is why we need the suffering servant to not only come to earth and be born in a low condition, but also to live a holy life and suffer in our place. In other words, we need Christmas and Easter and everything in between. Praise God we have it. But God's righteousness is more than that, more than his demands, which we can't meet, which Christ kept in our place, which he, for which he suffered. It's more. It's also about God making all things right, righting every wrong, making all things new, and revealing all that when his salvation comes near. And what these verses are showing us is that the one who by God's grace strives for justice on the Sabbath and in all of life, he will see justice. He will see the world put right. God is making all things new. So yes, brothers and sisters, feel the weight of all God's requirements, his Sabbath requirements and so much more. But through faith in Christ, feel that weight lifted.
feel it lifted. Feel the beautiful garments of salvation being given to you. Feel his acceptance. Feel the freedom to obey all those same commands without the fear of failure because Christ has suffered for your failure and given you the freedom to live for him. The one who strives for justice, which God commands by God's grace, he will see justice. He will see blessings worldwide. Soon God's salvation will come. Soon his righteousness will be revealed. And after that, after justice commanded and blessings promised, we also see this this morning. We see, secondly, legacy promised, pessimism prohibited. In verses 3 through 5, legacy promised, pessimism prohibited. Because for the people living between promise and reality, there is a temptation to be pessimistic, to be disappointed. Look at verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree, dry, shriveled up, unfruitful, unfruitful. That's how the eunuch might be tempted to feel. Deuteronomy 23, 1 through 6, it prohibited one from making a eunuch of oneself. Why is that? Because the holiness that God demanded was, quote, totally incompatible with physical mutilation as practiced in pagan cults. This is part of that same call to be distinctive, to be holy, to be set apart. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. That was true back then. That's still true now. Let that sit with you. Think about what it means today for diet, for exercise, for, for too much diet and exercise, for your clothes, for any other beauty enhancement, any other kind of external adornment for men or for women. But while these laws were meant to discourage physical mutilation, meant to reinforce the call to be holy, to discourage imitation of the world around them, while all that's true, they were never meant to exclude true converts among God's people. Just because something is a sin does not mean a sinner who repents of that sin can't be saved. The gospel's for sinners, including sinners who bear the scars of their own past sin, including sinners who've been sinned against and can barely see beyond today. The gospel is for penitent, repentant sinners. Someone who has, quote, joined himself to the Lord, as verse 3 says. For those who choose the things that please me, who hold fast to the covenant, verse 4. In other words, those who take the covenant promises seriously, who cling to them through thick and thin, like the true remnant of God's people. In addition, it talks about foreigners. Foreigners were always welcome if they pledge loyalty to Israel's God, Exodus 12, verses 48 and 49 talks about that. Foreigners might have thought they didn't really belong, but it says here foreigners would not forever be left out in the cold. No, they would be welcomed into God's house, verse 5, within his walls, as one person says, not just vaguely within the precincts, but right in the very divine presence. And likewise, the eunuch had hope beyond his Physical limitations. Why is that important? Well, remember Isaiah 39, 7. It talks about Hebrew royalty becoming eunuchs, being made eunuchs against their will in captivity. Babylon didn't want them to have kids because they didn't want them to make a play for the throne, launch a coup, establish a new dynasty. But to them and to others, 
who were beyond the hope of having children, God says, I'll give you a better legacy, a better remembrance, better than the sad monument that childless Absalom once set up. Shows you how important the legacy was back then. But here God says, I will guard your legacy. I'll give you a better legacy. You might feel like an outsider because of your nationality, your ethnicity. That was certainly true for foreigners in Isaiah's day. You may feel like an outsider because of your family or your lack thereof. And whatever you might feel then or now, here's the reality. We're all outsiders without God's grace, Jews and Gentiles alike. All were dead in our sins and transgressions, and Gentiles especially feel the separation, the alienation that Ephesians 2.12 talks about, strangers to the covenants, without hope and without God in the world. But Ephesians 2.13, the very next verse says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The outsider who clings to God's grace will be an insider forever. That will be your legacy. And Lord willing, you'll also be an ambassador who can carry that message of peace and acceptance to others as well. You'll be able to see his justice become reality one day. You'll be able to see your legacy established in Christ. We see here a legacy promised and pessimism prohibited because of the great inheritance we have. And we also see thirdly and finally, outcasts and prodigals gathered and accepted. Outcasts and prodigals gathered and accepted in verses 6 through 8. Let's read verses 6 and 7. It says, And the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. <clears throat> Again, foreigners are specifically mentioned here, which might have meant resident aliens within Israel. And we've also mentioned another group that was seen to be on the outskirts of society, eunuchs. And the point of this whole section, whole passage seems to be God's promises are not limited to the nation of Israel. God's people who had failed and were being disciplined, yes, they have hope, but others had hope too. The restoration of God's people, it would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, to all individuals who love the name of the Lord, who kept his Sabbath by his grace, who came to understand the God of the Sabbath, the one who loved his people enough to give them a Sabbath. That's something that Hebrew slaves never had in Egypt, for example. And all this is not promising salvation for those who obey. No, it's saying those who trust God, they will obey. They will love the Lord. They will keep his Sabbaths perfectly. They will cling to his covenant promises. And Lord willing, it'll be more true of them, of us tomorrow than it is today. But what is God promising to those who cling to him? Look at verse 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. 
He'll bring them into his home and he'll bring them joy. The kind of joy the prodigal son experienced when the prodigal father ran to meet him and then threw a party. We just had to celebrate, the father said to the bitter older brother. This, my son, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. God will also give them acceptance. It says here their offerings are accepted, which is to say that they are accepted through faith in the Savior. Their sins will be covered. They'll be allowed into the holy presence of the unapproachable God. And you see this acceptance, it's more than a mere welcome, more than a hello, more than a kind word. This is acceptance and belonging, despite their status, which might have rendered them undesirable, unwelcome in, in, in their minds. Because what does the next line say? For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The worship that prayer signifies here, this is what God's house was always meant to be. Always meant to be a house of prayer, of worship, not just for Israel, but for all peoples. There's some interesting themes that sort of come together here. You have worship and holiness, the pursuit of God. You also have the nations, the idea of evangelism, the expansion of God's kingdom, his people. Because sometimes we might think that holiness and pursuing God are somehow opposed to evangelism. They're not. Not here, not ever. Because the holy law of God helps us to see our need of Christ. And his holy spotless sacrifice draws us in and frees us from guilt so that we're able to pursue holiness and happiness anew. Because God is still gathering. God is still Seeking worshipers. You see that here in verse 8. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. When Jesus came, he alluded to this verse saying in John 10, 16, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. His salvation is coming, which is to say that he is coming. He's coming to gather, coming to gather the prodigals, the outcasts of Israel and elsewhere. Prodigals who were born into the people of God, but who have strayed, wasted their privileges, as well as foreigners to whom the promises of God are foreign, unfamiliar, maybe even undesirable. God is coming after both, coming to gather coming to welcome, coming to accept us into his presence forever. He's coming, bringing his salvation near to a motley crew like us, to transplants and foreigners and outsiders, to those who think they're disqualified, to prodigals who were born on third base but got lost along the way, to those who think they keep the Sabbath perfectly, but who are really delusional, overestimating their own perfection and downplaying their pride. And to those who can't spell Sabbath, he wants to bring salvation near. And he wants to bring us near into his presence to show us his ways in all the paths of the Lord, our steadfast love and faithfulness. Again, the best is still to come. But for those who follow God's paths, the best will be here soon.
Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your goodness, your kindness to sinners such as us. Father, for those of us who think that we have it right and don't need much help, oh God, help us. Father, for those who know that we've lost our way and have strayed from your path, help us as well. Help us to know that your paths are good and they are for our good. Help us to know that your son, our savior, not only wants us to walk on that path, but he has done all that was necessary to seek us out, to atone for our wrong and bring us back to the paths of righteousness where he desires to lead us. God be with us. Bless us for Jesus' sake. We ask it in his name. Amen.